Now more with Frank Gaffney. We're back, and it's a distinct pleasure to say we are joined by a man whose time in uniform was quite remarkable, and his time now writing about the sorts of things he worked on while he was in the United States Marine Corps. Uh, in his current capacity as a senior research fellow for defense programs at the esteemed Heritage Foundation, is, if anything, as remarkable and certainly as needed as uh, what he did for us in the Marines. Dakota Wood is his name. He rose through the ranks to the uh, uh, esteemed position of a lieutenant colonel. Uh, he is now retired, but he is bringing to bear his insights as a strategic planner and uh, expert on budgetary affairs to help the rest of us understand what is the actual status of our military uh, and its adequacy to the kinds of threats that we're facing around the world today. He is the editor of a remarkable product of the Heritage Foundation. It's called the Index of U.S. Military Strength, the 2021 edition of which is now out. And it's always a great privilege, really, to have a chance to visit with him. Dakota Wood, welcome back to Secure Freedom Radio, sir. Frank, it's always a delight to be with you. Thanks for, for having me on and for these types of issues that you bring <laughs> to America's attention. So, uh, you know, it's uh, long-term longevity and, and security of our country hang in the balance and, and just applaud you for, for raising sorts of things. Amen. Well, listen, it's uh, it's the ability to bring people like you to the microphone that uh, make it possible to do that. So let's talk a little bit about, uh, we're going to have two blocks of uh, the show with you, and I'm very appreciative of that. Uh, in the first, I wanted to really explore with you one of the most important essays I've seen in a long time. Uh, it's entitled, The Woke Takeover of the U.S. Military Endangers Us All. Uh, you can find it now on the Heritage Foundation website at appeared originally on the 25th of May in the New York Post. You co-authored it with uh, one of your uh, very valued colleagues there at Heritage, uh, Mike Gonzalez, uh, who I hope to have on the show for uh, an extended period here shortly as well. But um, talk a little bit about what you mean when you say the woke takeover of the U.S. military, and then we'll get into how dangerous it is. You know, public awareness of this issue, it, it, that wasn't spurred by, but it was really amplified by the firing of uh, uh, the U.S. Space Force Lieutenant Colonel by the name of Lohmeyer. He was in charge, command of a unit, and uh, he had self-published a book talking about this Marxist ideology that's being imposed upon the military. And, you know, the training sessions that he was involved in and, and the messaging that he had heard from uh, his chain of command, you know, from the Secretary of Defense uh, on down uh, through the ranks. And so he was concerned about it, wrote this book, and then he'd been featured on various podcasts. And it was a result of the visibility of the issue that he had brought to it. Uh, the military chain of command came down and relieved him of duty uh, without really clear explanation, you know, just a loss of trust and confidence. So Mike and I looked into this. And we thought, well, what did he say? We listened to the podcast, nothing objectionable in terms of, you know, insulting the chain of command or anything like that. But what it comes down to, to the contrary, as I recall, he, he actually complimented the chain of command. Absolutely. And so what he was talking about and the point of your question is, what are these ideas that are being forced upon the military by the administration and by advocates of critical race theory, 
and gender identity and, uh, you know, these uh, chosen kind of paths in life that might not square with the more conservative points of view that generally characterize the military. And, and you know, this, especially in the critical race theory. Traditional values, as they're called. Yeah, traditional values, you know, the, this idea of white guilt, the, the idea that racism has been built into, was codified by the U.S. Constitution and is built into the very fabric and social and legal structures of the United States. So these are the things, this class warfare, you know, oppressed versus oppressor, right, um, that are being introduced into the military. And when you think about the military, it's team building, right? It's unity. It's, it's uh, there is a country that I love and that I want to defend and potentially lay down my life for. Yeah, and but you, you swear an oath to support and defend that constitution that is supposedly a racist document? That's absolutely right. So here you have in a unit... Polynesians, you know, uh, blacks, uh, European descent, American Indians. I mean, this whole beautiful mix of, of youth from, from across the country, you know, different economic backgrounds, different religious backgrounds. And they, they put on the uniform, they go through the same training, they receive the same orders, they salute smartly and try to execute to the best of their ability. So when you start introducing ideas, that says, hey, you white guys should feel guilty, you black guys should be uh, feel like you're oppressed, uh, you Indian ethnic background folks, you know, have always been on the sidelines, uh, you, you know, Japanese uh, background people, you know, should feel that you're, you know, haven't been treated properly. I mean, you know, whatever the, the interest group is. Fostering resentments throughout the ranks, in other words. Resentment, division, uh, independent identities that work against the idea of team building. The fact that the unit leader might have come from a particular racial or ethnic or social or religious background should have no bearing on whether or not their orders are followed, right? What, what All of these folks... Desire to serve. Yeah, implicit in what you've said, but just to make it explicit, all of these folks have an opportunity, the same opportunity, to excel, to be advanced on the basis of merit, uh, the content of their character and their performance, in other words, as Martin Luther King might have said, and not their color of skin or ethnic background or what have you. And and so this is a point uh, I, I've spent a lot of time working with in, of late um, uh, a distinguished group of military officers uh, operating together now under the banner of something called the Flag Officers for America, Dakota. And, and like you, and like me for that matter, though as a civilian, uh, we all swore an oath to support and defend the Constitution of the United States. And they feel that that's a continuing obligation. And they've been very troubled by this because they feel that what is being done to the military, and I think you and Mike Gonzalez have said the same, um, is potentially utterly incompatible, not only with unit cohesion and good order and discipline and all that, but with the readiness and the warfighting capability and therefore the deterrent capability of our military. Talk about that, if you would, in a, in a very dangerous world. Is that something we can actually afford to do? It is. If the military turns on itself, if you pit groups within the military against each other and you start to question why somebody was promoted or put into a position, doesn't that break down unit cohesion and discipline and a willingness to follow orders and to do what needs to be done? So if you're an external player like China or Russia and you see this tumult, you know, this erosion of discipline and cohesion and unit effectiveness within the military, it has you thinking this is not the military 
military of the 1940s or the 1960s you know, or 1980s, right? I mean, it doesn't have the wherewithal to really take to the field and to be able to trust itself and therefore won't be effective on the battlefield. And so it creates opportunities, erodes deterrence, as you said, and causes uh, countries like Iran and North Korea to think now is the moment to move and to do very dangerous things in the world because the United States is so distracted, right? And so um, uh, self-flagellating, you know, over these perceived ills that they won't be able to respond to that. And here's the point, Frank, is that um, the ideologies being opposed, these Marxist ideologies, aren't even rooted in the factual reality of what's going on in the world. There isn't another country on the planet that has the diversity and population that the United States does, right? The heterogeneity um, that, that, that is the beautiful part of America, the opportunity and quality of life and freedom of speech. You go to any other country in the world, and 90-some-odd percent, there's going to be a homogeneous culture, right? They all look fairly the same. They all have the same upbringings and all that stuff. And it's very hard for any other group of people to be introduced and to assimilate. Japan really has a serious problem with this. South Koreans do. The French do, right? Uh, And so America, in our 200-plus years, has been the shining example of opportunity and equality. We even had a war amongst ourselves to ensure that. It's a, a beautiful melting pot. And so these, these ideas that were inherently racist, that uh, we are systemically keeping people from rising you know, to the top of whatever profession that they want to go into is nonsense. And the military is the best example of America as the best example. And that you can come from anywhere in the world based on merit, capability, willingness to throw in with the team, and you can rise to the very top levels of, of uh, military power. Which is one of the reasons why the Marxists are so determined to take down the military, as it is a shining example. It enshrines these values. Its uniform code of military justice essentially is all about assuring that this is the way that the military will operate. So they have to tear it apart, but it also has the double benefit, as far as they're concerned, of, of course, making us more vulnerable to their predations. And yeah, I really wanted to jump on this, okay, because because bringing up this issue, and you and I talked a little bit about it before the program, is that if you're a Marxist or you're wanting some, you're somebody wants to tear down America, the military is the best tool to do that because it is an institution that prizes civilian control of the military. It, it doesn't chart its own course. I mean, we don't want a military that looks at the commander in chief, you know, the president, right? And decides not to follow an order, right? So Unless it is an unlawful one, that, that right is preserved. Unless it's an unlawful order. But in this case, we would have to show that it's legal or not legal. So the military, if you can impose things upon it. It's a way to normalize or introduce these divisive ideologies in ways that affect all of America because it's a federal entity and these men and women deploy not only across the country but across the world. So it's up to people like you and me and others outside the military to say things that perhaps the military can't say for itself because it does exist in a structure where you're following orders and you're not supposed to be bad-mouthing or criticizing the change command from inside. Does that make sense? It does indeed. And I think it's why we feel so appreciative of the work that you do 
uh, Dakota Wood, uh, Mike Gonzalez, the others at Heritage, and uh, the ability to use this platform to help give voice to those in the uniform who can't speak for themselves. And such a manner as this, uh, witness what happened with Matt Lohmeyer. Um, but we are trying to do what we can to shine light on specifically this fellow Bishop Garrison and this countering extremism working group, which is being used with the help of the Southern Poverty Law Center and the Anti-Defamation League and the Muslim Brotherhood to purge patriots from the military. This has to be called out. I believe it has to be shut down as well. More on that in a moment. Go to securefreedomradio.org today. It's your freedom. It's your country. Frank Gaffney's Secure Freedom Radio. This is Frank Afney with the Secure Freedom Minute. The true face of the Chinese Communist Party was exposed 32 years ago tonight in Beijing's Tiananmen Square. Conservatively, 10,000 people were massacred there by the CCP's military as they demonstrated for democracy around a version of our Statue of Liberty. To its eternal shame, the George H.W. Bush administration immediately dispatched National Security Advisor Brent Scowcroft to assure the Chinese Communists that we wouldn't allow their mass murder to interfere with business as usual. The rest, as they say, is history. The CCP took our measure, found our leaders and elites to be corrupt, unprincipled and weak, and furiously pursued the destruction of our country and world domination ever since. We must now prove them wrong, or as Ronald Reagan said, we'll be reduced to telling our children what it was like to live in America when men were free. This is Frank Gaffney. Go to securefreedomradio.org today. It's your freedom. It's your country. Frank Gaffney's Secure Freedom Radio. We're back. We're continuing a remarkable and I think very important conversation with a man I admire greatly. His name is Lieutenant Colonel Dakota Wood, United States Marine Corps retired. He is now a senior research fellow uh, specializing in defense policy and programs at the Heritage Foundation. And we've uh, just been visiting about, um, well, what I think of as an enemy within problem inside the United States Armed Forces. Uh, We're going to turn now to talking about some of the enemies without, enemies that are uh, much in evidence, unfortunately, at this moment around the world and seemingly seeing an opportunity to behave aggressively at our expense and that of other freedom-loving folks. Um, Let me ask you, Dakota, if I might, uh, as a man who has very closely followed our military forces and capabilities, this is, of course, the subject of your index of military strength, what are the implications that the only United States carrier and its battle group in the Pacific Fleet is now being sent off to Afghanistan to try to facilitate uh, and perhaps to some extent compensate for President Biden's decision to withdraw the remaining forces from the ground there. It's a wonderful example of the multiple facts that influence the perception of military power and the utility of military power. If you only have one carrier battle group in the Pacific, as important as the Pacific is, what does that say about the size of our fleet? You know, that we can't be able to surge something to cover down in this requirement uh, to be able to provide supporting fires for the withdrawal from Afghanistan, right? That, that the Reagan has to make that transit and we don't have anything else in the barn that we can uh, to send out to replace it or to take care of the job 
uh, you know, their um, uh, near Afghanistan. So it, it talks about fleet size. You know, in the 1980s, we were near 600 ships. Today, we're below 300. And our shipyards are in such a poor state of repair that ships will sit in port waiting on their maintenance availability for months, if not years. So it tells you about the availability of ships and the number. So that's number one. It, it is. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, you have a ship and it's waiting two years to even get into the maintenance and then it takes far longer because more problems have cropped up. And so instead of it being in the yards for six months, it's there for nine months or a year. So having one carrier battle group having to make this strategic shift and leaving that part of the world uncovered with that sort of naval power is a powerful representation of the problems we have back here at home. Two, it's a perception thing, right? That that our enemies, our adversaries, you know, we talked about deterrence earlier. What does this say about the ability of the United States to make good on alliance promises to Japan, South Korea, and others? Wouldn't the Chinese, I mean, they can count better than we can, I think, in most cases. And they say, wow, the U.S. can't cover down on an obligation. So does that degrade deterrence? Yes, it does. And does it invite opportunism? And I think the answer is yes in both of those cases. Um, and it's coming against the backdrop. The carrier battle group to cover the withdrawal from Afghanistan is another whole issue about how things were handled in Afghanistan for 20 years. And the reality, and this is another point here, is that the reality of warfare, the reality of military operations is a lot different than the theories and the bright, shiny ideas that people might have when they're formulating all these crazy foreign policy uh, proposals. And that withdrawal from a combat zone is often the more dangerous part, right? Even more so than perhaps introducing forces. And so as you withdraw, draw down your capabilities on land, you want to be able to protect your forces when they're in the most vulnerable positions. You have to have some kind of capability that does that, which says naval air power remains important, regardless of the debates over the survivability of the carrier and those sorts of things, that if we had land bases nearby, then we would cover that withdrawal with land-based air power, right? So you find yourself in situations in the real world where tools that people have said were not viable for many, many years now all of a sudden become critically important. So if it's important enough to provide covering air power in Afghanistan, and the only resource you have in that part of the world is to pull it from the Pacific, with all of the downsides to doing that, what does that say about the state of our military, right? And our defense budget, the size of our fleets, and all those sorts of things. So it's a huge example that covers a multitude of factors that don't get enough ability. Dakota, let me just draw you out on something that was implicit in what you just said. It's not just that it's uh, considered to be important to have air power covering our withdrawal from Afghanistan. It's that it's necessary. And the reason it's necessary is because the enemy hasn't given up. And one of the things, uh, you know, you hear this all the time as well, um, that we have to just stop these endless wars. And it's it's even from the mouths of some people in the military, and I get that. They, they're tired of this Afghanistan debacle. I, I think all of us are. But the point is that the enemy gets a vote. And if you withdraw, having not defeated that enemy, 
and they are still in the field and they are still active, including active perhaps against you as you withdraw, certainly against your allies in Afghanistan, you will find yourself losing that endless war. And that has very considerable effects too. I, I'm reminded, and, and I'm sure this is a vivid uh, imprint on your experience. I don't think you were of an age to fight in it, but you certainly lived through the repercussions of Vietnam. And our loss of Vietnam, our defeat in Vietnam, not militarily, but politically, and what flowed from it, whether it was the image of the, the iconic, uh, horrifying image of people being desperately lifted off that embassy, or whether it was the domino effect that did happen when the communists used what they did with that victory in Vietnam to murder tens of millions of people elsewhere in the region. So these are the sorts of things that um, make me very anxious about what's happening in Afghanistan, I have to say. And uh, your point about how what we have to do there is connected to what we have to do in the Pacific is is a very, very compelling point as well, I think. So this is the importance of well-thought-out strategy and being serious every single day, not being distracted by things when problems like this come up. So military power is not an infinite resource. I mean, you consume that. You consume popular goodwill. You uh, consume the perceptions of America as being effective. So when you decide... And the wherewithal of your forces, too. And you've, you've documented this problem better than just about anybody. Right. So I've got X number of airplanes. If I'm flying them at combat rates for years on end, I will use up the life of that plane, which means the plane has to be replaced. So the average age of an Air Force fighter today is 30 years old. Who drives a 30-year-old car? Right. So if we're not willing to fund replacement of the assets that we're using, then you have to be very circumspect about using them in the first place, if that makes sense. And you know, the criticism of Afghanistan was it's not been a 20-year war, it's been 21-year wars, because we kept adding on requirements to our forces. It wasn't just defeating the Taliban. Now it's building schools, and now it's building roads, and putting in power stations, and trying to take you know an 8th century culture and bring it into the 21st century. So when you start adding requirements, nation building, right? So is it defeating the enemy? Is that the priority? Or is it turning Afghanistan into a Western European representative democracy, right? So all of these things are noble, but your bank account is limited. You're using up time and goodwill and resources, wearing out your people and all those sorts of things. So we have to be very judicious when we use military power, understanding the long-term consequences. So where we find ourselves today, after 20 years in Afghanistan, is having to pull a carrier battle from nearby China, right, and sending it to Afghanistan. That's where we are at because of the parlous state of affairs in the U.S. military. I'm sorry to say I've got about 20 other things I want to talk to you about, and we've got no time to do it. But I, I did just want to introduce a topic for hopefully a next conversation soon. And that is against this backdrop of using up our military and not investing in it on an ongoing basis to assure its continued ability to meet the evolving threats of our time. A prime example of this, of course, is our nuclear deterrent forces. Thanks for bringing up the nuclear issue. I think it is very instructive that the Biden administration is pursuing the Trump administration's investment decisions and modernizing the nuclear portfolio. So if things were good in our nuclear establishment, why would the Joe Biden administration anger the progressive left by continuing the Trump administration's spending patterns? 
you know, on the nuclear triad, nuclear infrastructure, etc. So I think it is very revealing about the true state of our nuclear capabilities and how our competitors might be viewing the nuclear deterrence capability that we have so prized and has guaranteed Western security for the last half century or more. Thank you for your time today. Thank you for your insights. Thank you for the great work you do today at Heritage and have done for the United States Marine Corps and for all of us. Come back to us again soon. I hope the rest of you will do the same again tomorrow. Same time, same station. Until then, this is Frank Afney. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Secure Freedom Radio with Frank Gaffney.